0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. How are we this morning? Good, 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 good. Uh, we're going to be in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 19 this morning, so I'll give you guys a minute to, to go ahead and turn there if you've got your Bible with you or find it on your mobile device or you can just sit um, and, and listen or, or read the words off the screens. We continue uh, week three into uh, a series, Hawaii Church, where we're walking through uh, our particular mission statement. Again, um, how we take and in a single sentence, blend what we believe is the heartbeat and the outcome of uh, the Great Commission and the Great Commandments, and we just are saying week by week, and you're seeing uh, around you this statement that we as a church exist to glorify God by helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus through gospel-centered ministry. Uh, we've looked at glorifying God. Last week, we looked at what it means to be a church that, um, that is equipped and passionate about helping all kinds a people find and follow Jesus. And this morning we're going to talk about what it is uh, and what it looks like to help people find Jesus. Um, before we get there, have, have anybody else noticed that gas prices are going up? Yeah, so uh, I drive uh, a Toyota RAV right now. We did some vehicle changes a, a while back, and this is going to become our oldest daughter's um, she's about to get her license, but I've been yearning and whining about wanting to be back in a truck, right? Uh, so Texas is a, a land of trucks. We moved to Georgia, which is a land of trucks, uh, and I drive a Toyota RAV, which is okay, right? It gets me from here to there, but yesterday I had to, I had to get gas, and I pulled up uh, behind a, a, a Ford Expedition, which is not a truck but a big vehicle in line at Kroger, And there was another vehicle in front of him. And I pulled up there, and he was filling up with gas already. And I waited maybe a minute and a half, and the car in front of him pulled off. And I pulled up in front of him, and I filled up with gas, completed my purchase, and drove off. And he was still there. And I thought, you know, it's not such a bad vehicle. Um, Not such a bad vehicle. I don't know how much gas he was putting in there, but I was grateful I was not paying that bill. So that's just for free. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through um, one of the most familiar uh, stories and one of the most beloved stories in the life of the church, Jesus' encounter with a chief tax collector, a man named Zacchaeus. And always the challenge is when, uh, when we're preaching through a story that is familiar with all of, it, uh, all of us, is for God to speak clearly and freshly to us this morning, for us to be interrupted by the Spirit of God through a story that we feel confident we already know. So I would just ask you to be praying for that in your own life. I'm going to read through the passage in its entirety and then pray for us. And we're going to work our way through it, um, seeking to see how it speaks to us about helping, find, uh, helping people find Jesus and how that reflects God's heart, um, not only for his mission in the world, but for his church, which, it, which exists for his mission. Let's look at Luke chapter 19. Verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree or fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. God, open this passage to us. Lord Jesus, make it new and real and powerful in our lives. I pray that you would speak to us over the next few minutes through the power of your word that you would do what only you can do, what human gifting and human preparation and human intent and planning cannot accomplish. God, interrupt us, set us free of false narratives in our lives. God, ignite a fire where apathy has existed. God, bring conviction and repentance where we have allowed sin in our lives. Restore us where we're broken and in need of healing and wholeness. And Father God, I ask that little by little, you would week by week prepare us and lead us to be able to effectively reach and effectively receive and effectively raise up new disciples. God, to your glory and to the glory of the name of your faithful, precious, and powerful Son. It's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. All right, let's take this and look through. This is really a story in three scenes. And in scene one, we really, uh, we really see Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus is on the move, and Zacchaeus is on the move. He wants to see Jesus, but he's having a hard time doing so. And verse one tells us that Jesus enters Jericho, but he's passing through. He's passing through, and Luke is reminding us that Jesus is headed somewhere. The end of chapter 19, we'll find Jesus in Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus headed to the cross. Chapter 18 has Jesus on his journey toward Jerusalem as he's encountering different kinds of people and doing a great deal of teaching about the relationship between those who are righteous or those who, uh, who see themselves as righteous and repentance the repentance that God demands. And part of what Luke wants to know here is that Jesus isn't going to Jericho to have this encounter with Zacchaeus. He's simply passing through on his way somewhere else. But Jesus has this unique ability to always be busy but never be in a hurry. right? Jesus is always going somewhere. Jesus is always doing things. But he is always willing to turn aside and to meet people where they are. Look at verse 2. This man named Zacchaeus is here. And the text tells us that he's a chief tax collector and he's wealthy. Many of you know what this means. Some of you may not. But it means that Zacchaeus was at a very high level a collaborator with the Roman Empire. He was a collaborator with those who were oppressing and subjugating his own people. Not only that, but he did it in a kind of hands-off matter. So as a chief tax collector, he sort of oversaw field collectors, field agents of the IRS in his day, who would go out and would take from their own people. And they, as you can imagine, were highly despised. Highly despised. They had uh, nowhere to experience any kind of community or hope aside from uh, the presence of one another. They had traded all of that For fool's gold in a sense. And he was wealthy. He had been effective at doing this. But he wanted to see. He wanted to see Jesus. Maybe he'd heard about some of the encounters that people had had with Jesus on the way. We're going to look at one of those in just a minute. A story that Jesus told. Maybe Zacchaeus was wondering in the, the state of condemnation that he lived in. Before religious leaders and religious people in his day. Would Jesus have something to offer him? Maybe he had come to realize at this point that he'd made a bad trade, right? That he had, had made a bad trade in trusting money and wealth. But he couldn't see. He couldn't get around and over the crowd. Verse 4 says he ran ahead and he climbed a, a sycamore, a fig tree. These were um, not tall trees. They had wide bases and wider limbs that went out. They were great for climbing, great for, for sitting in. But it's not often that you would see grown men sitting in them, Right? It's like going to the pool and you've got the little kiddie pool there and there's a man sitting there splashing and playing, right? Somebody's going to call the cops. Um, It would have been one thing for kids to be up in the tree here and likely they were. And then there's this squatty chief tax collector, this IRS agent up in the tree looking for Jesus. Maybe he'd heard the story that Jesus told in chapter 18. It won't be up on the screens here, but I just want you to listen. Jesus tells a parable as he's uh, in the middle of people who just aren't getting God's heart. Verse 9 of chapter 18 tells us this. To some who were confident of their very own righteousness. It's a powerful way to start out, isn't it? Jesus is about to address some people who are confident of their very own righteousness. And looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Uh, So so one is is squeaky clean, right? Um, He's looked at, he's admired for his spiritual commitment. He's a Sunday school teacher, he's a deacon, he helps receive offering. Uh, He does all of this kind of stuff. He's well-dressed, well-versed, well-spoken. The other not so much. The other's a tax collector, a collaborator, a traitor. looked down on, despised, understood to be outside of the reach of God. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, you know, nasty people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this sad guy here, the tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He says, Look, I'm very spiritual. I, I practice fasting regularly, I'm faithful. In tithing, in giving the first 10% of my income back to you, God. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Maybe Zacchaeus maybe Zacchaeus had heard this parable that Jesus had told some days before. Maybe he'd heard a story that this man had told where the religious elites in his day, those who looked the best and spoke the best and seemed the cleanest and the purest and the most devoted, were cast out of God's presence in the final act, where God looks straight into the heart and sees all that he is, yet one like him was received. We don't know, but Zacchaeus is hungry. He, he climbs up this tree. He's exposing himself to ridicule, a loss of dignity and prestige. The same thing that you and I have to be willing to accept to come to Jesus. The same things that people are willing to accept as the Spirit of God is stirring and moving in their hearts. But what was, what was his main obstacle? There was, a, there was a main obstacle. Zacchaeus is trying to see Jesus, but he can't. Because there's a, a crowd there. And there's a series of, of encounters Jesus has. This is the the fourth of four of them. Where he has an encounter with a child and some young children. And the disciples are the obstacle there. They're the distraction. His own disciples who still don't understand God's heart. He has an encounter with a rich young ruler that we covered some weeks back. He has an encounter uh, with, a, with a leper who is... Um, having the same struggles that Zacchaeus is having. It's the crowd, and not a leper, I'm sorry, a blind man. The crowd is there, and they're making it difficult. And now here's Zacchaeus, and the crowd is making it difficult for Zacchaeus. But not just any crowd. We we find out as we read about their murmuring and their accusations against Jesus, their disgust, that he would go and be the guest of, quote-unquote, a sinner, somebody that they looked down on, somebody who wasn't like them. Tim Keller puts it this way. The main thing that is keeping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus is the crowd. And it's not just any crowd. It's a nasty, self-righteous, moralistic, religious crowd. You know, it's, it's hard to deal with this because it is more often than not the exact same thing in our day. Zacchaeus finds a way to look at Jesus, though, apart from the crowd doesn't he? He finds a way to see Jesus without looking at him through the lens of the crowd. And that's how those of you this morning who are are struggling to know whether or not Jesus is true, whether or not the, the morality and the ethics and the way of life that scripture teaches is good and right and true. Often you're going to have to find a way, as sad as it is, to look at Jesus, at who he really is, apart from and in spite of a crowd that is often self-righteous and moralistic and religious. You're going to have to look at Jesus directly and get past what is often true in my life and others, the the self-righteousness of so many professing Christians. You've got to get past the hypocrisy and the inconsistency that so many today and throughout history live with while confessing Jesus as Lord. You've got to see Jesus for who he really is. You've got to go to the Gospels, and you've got to let Jesus encounter you there. You've got to look holistically at what the people of God throughout history, by the Spirit of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, have done. The fruit that has been born. You've got to see Jesus for who he really is. We've got to help people see Jesus for who he really is, which means the way that you live on your street The way that you work and talk and interact with people at your work, the way that you behave yourself through a political season, the way that you navigate a global pandemic needs to be such that people don't have to look over you or around you to actually see Jesus, but can look at you to see the gospel represented, to see Jesus represented to a world broken and confused. Because the truth is, we see throughout Luke and throughout the Gospels that Jesus is just as frustrated as many of us are and turned off by self-righteous and religious people. And he has a right to be. In the end, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way, the truth, and life. The sinless, eternal, compassionate Son of God and Savior of the world. But I want to give this warning for you. And for me, for those of you processing your way to faith in Christ, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, to be consistently mad at self-righteous people takes a degree of self-righteousness itself, does it not? It takes a degree in us of looking down on them. And I would just say, you're going to have to get over it if you're, struggling with Jesus and faith in the church. You and I are going to have to get over it if it bothers us and look past Him and in our lives day in and day out, interaction by interaction, see Jesus really for who He really is. I got a call this last week out of the blue. I got a text seeing if I could talk, and um, I said yes, and then got a call late one evening from a friend that I haven't, talked to in several years. We got to be good friends with he and his wife when we were uh, church planners. I was pastoring in Southern California. Um, I've seen him once or twice since we moved uh, going back there, and their kids were about our kid's age. And so, um, But I hadn't talked to him in a while. And, uh, so getting a, getting a text from him out of the blue was really surprising. He, he had never come to faith in Christ. Um, he'd been part of a small group uh, at our house. He'd ask a lot of good questions. He'd been vulnerable and shared, but he just couldn't go there. And, and for him, it was so much of what he saw in the church, so much of the, the bitterness and pettiness and squabbling and infighting and smallness. And he just struggled to, to, to believe that the gospel does produce what we were saying in the end, it does produce. And so uh, I called him, or, or he called me, I guess, rather, and we were on the back porch and we were talking. And he said, hey, man, he said, I just, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to call you, um, he said, because we started going to church a, a couple of years ago. Um, And they had come, they'd actually been part of uh, the new church start we did there, and eventually they kind of faded out, Um, but we remained friends, and he said, uh, it's really changing my life. And he said, we go pretty faithfully, and it's changing us as a family. And he said, I just wanted to call, he said, uh, his wife said, hey, you need to to call Matt. And so he just called, and he said, I just want to, Thank you, and thank you guys. He said, had, had you not come here and been who you were, we absolutely would not be where we are today. And it's funny because I, I remember him. Uh, there, were, there were moments where he would push back heavily um, on things we were talking about in, in group, uh, and he'd have serious questions. But I remember one time they were over for dinner uh, one night, uh, he and his wife and their little girls, and he said, you know what? uh he said, I have to admit, much to my own consternation, that you guys have uh, you've passed the sniff test. And I, I kind of laughed, and I knew what he was talking about, but I said, you know, do tell me more. And, and uh, Sharon and I observed visibly the fright on he and his wife's face. Uh, we met because our kids were in the same preschool together, and we just started talking. He was a former Marine, and so was I, so we connected and talked some about that. Um, and we invited them over for dinner. He's like, yeah, man, that's going to be awesome. And then toward the end of the conversation, uh, it turned toward work, hey, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? And I told him, you could just see the fear and apprehension all over their faces, like, oh, oh great, right? We just got invited to dinner by a pastor, a sort of a third gender, you've got men, women, and pastors uh, who are weird and different, but we already said yes, so it's going to look small and petty if we don't Come. Uh, And they were uh, visibly anxious and nervous the first night, Uh, but our friendship grew. And what's amazing is that we can trust God's work in people's lives, but you and I are called to be engaging in the lives of Zacchaeus in our day. We're called to be getting to know and befriending and caring about and loving people far from Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus himself does here. Now, look at scene two, which begins in verse five. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Come down now. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. He welcomed him with joy. He welcomed him with joy. I was talking to uh, an individual yesterday during membership class after, and she comes from a background uh, that's more Pentecostal and is Baptist now, and she said uh, the, the one thing that she really deeply misses from her former church life was the joy, the joy. And I had to admit going up in Baptist churches, yeah, you got that one right. There's a lot that Baptists get right, but joy is not something that most people would say they experience uh, at, at a very visible or perceptible level when they attend and participate in the life of Baptist churches. We're hoping to see that change. Uh, the last class I had as a seminary student in the Master of Divinity program was with uh, a man named Roger Olson, who's a, a renowned Baptist theologian. I've written a, a ton on Baptist theology, life, and history, and as well as just the theology of the church. And Olson, uh, it was funny, and I told her that Olson had, had said the last thing to us our very last night of our very last class before graduating and many of us going out to pastor and lead churches. Uh, he also, too, had grown up in a, a Pentecostal background and had become uh, a Baptist Uh, earlier in his life, in his 30s, and went on to be a a Baptist uh, professor and Baptist theologian and author, Uh, and he said the exact same thing, and he gave us a challenge. He gave us a charge. He said, if you guys and gals do anything as you graduate and leave here and go out into the church, please, by God's grace and mercy, seek to bring into the life of Baptist people a renewed sense of joy and delight in God. A new sense of understanding that that they have been redeemed and set free. That it is not about their good works and their religion and their dress. And this is from a guy who's given his entire life to building and growing Baptist churches. Zacchaeus comes down. He has this one immediate encounter with Jesus. And there is something about running into Jesus and Jesus calling him by name. That brings gladness and joy out of Zacchaeus' life. He does scramble down. And you might wonder, like, why doesn't Jesus preach the gospel to Zacchaeus? Right? Because he clearly needs it. We all need it. Zacchaeus was clearly a sinner. He absolutely was guilty before God. And the people around him had every right to despise him. And his traitorous collaboration with the Romans, that resulted in increased pain and subjugation in their own life. He needs it. I think it's because Jesus understands the very fact that Zacchaeus is up in that tree, experiencing the ridicule and shame and harassment that would have come with being a grown man in the ancient Near East, of some status in some circles at least, as a chief tax collector, climbing up this tree. Jesus understands that the Spirit of God is already at work in this man's heart. Zacchaeus is already understanding something about his sin and his need for Jesus. And I don't want you to miss the order of things that happen here and happen in the latter verses. Jesus says he's coming home with Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus repents. Or does any kind of activity that shows a change of heart. You notice that? Jesus just sees him up in the tree. And he says, come down, Zacchaeus. I must go home with you. I must go home with you. You're taking me home today. In a sense, Zacchaeus doesn't invite Jesus into his life. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus's life. He says, "Yes, guess, guess what? Come home, or come down. Let's go home. You're going to make me a meal. We're going to have fellowship, and we're going to hang out together. And this sets, people, this sets people off. In that day, as many of you know, eating with somebody was Huge. It was a huge declaration, a visible picture of acceptance, right? Of not just toleration, but of friendship and intimacy. When someone came into a home with someone else, it was this display, powerful display, that they were, in a sense, doing life together to eat with someone meant to enter into someone's life and be part of the daily rhythms of their life. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was saying, Zacchaeus, let's, let's go to your house together now. You and I are now bound together. It was an act of intimacy. It's not a Sunday thing. It's a daily thing. Zacchaeus brings Jesus home. And in a sense you see a picture kind of here of what theologians call or describe as effectual grace or effectual calling is probably more accurate. That when when God calls into the specific life of a specific person, it will yield the result and the fruit that God intends. And we see that here with Zacchaeus. We see it here. We we see it with other figures, right? We, We know about Saul of Tarsus who... Uh, ends up going by his Roman name, Paul, after his conversion, his commission uh, to the Gentiles. And and even conversion is a tricky word there because uh, Paul was a follower of God looking for the Messiah. He just didn't understand it to be the suffering and crucified Jesus, right? But as he's reflecting back on that in Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes God as having called him from the womb, as having called him from the womb. Jeremiah says the same thing. In Jeremiah 1.5, that God called him to himself and called him to his mission in the womb, regardless of what time, he reveals that in his good pleasure to Jeremiah. King David says in Psalm 51.6 that God was near to him in the womb and that God taught him wisdom in the womb. You want to know verses that speak against the brutal systematic sin of abortion in our nation these are just a few just a few that say from conception there's life that god draws near to there's an effectual calling in Zacchaeus's life here and he responds to it there's nothing like there's nothing magical or overly Um, visible or, or overly magnificent about this Jesus just says get down from the tree we're going home I'm going home with you and a lot of you your story it's not dynamic it's not showy it's a quiet normal story for some of you it may be like me I don't ever remember a time when I didn't believe Jesus was who he says he is As long as I can remember, I was to one degree or another following Jesus. Now, there was a time where that became very real for me. And like many of us who've grown up in church, there was like this early picture of that around eight or nine where someone uh, uh, read to me some things in the Bible and my heart was warm and, and I said yes and I prayed a prayer and they baptized me. And then there was a later time in my teens where it really became very real for me. There's an interesting section in C.H. Spurgeon's autobiography. Spurgeon, that, that great 19th century British preacher, the, the uh, founder and pastor of the first megachurch in the, the world, the metropolitan tabernacle was running 5,000 people on a weekly basis in the 1800s. And in his autobiography, he talks about uh, when, when he would meet with the, the thousands that came to faith over the years of his ministry there. He would meet with them or other elders in um, that church would, would meet with them and would hear their story, that Spurgeon was blown away by how many of their stories were just normal kind of everyday undramatic stories about just coming to believe by God's grace that Jesus is who he says he is. He tells the story of this, uh, what he calls an excellent young lady, that was uh, a 19th century British language there, uh, of an excellent young lady who he spoke with and just said, tell me about Uh, your story, how'd you come to faith in in Christ, and uh, she came to faith as a young adult there in London, and she just said, well, she said, I just, I looked at him, and he was compassionate and sinless, there was a, a beauty and a purity and a wholeness to him that I knew did not exist in me, and I needed it. Zacchaeus, there's nothing dramatic about Zacchaeus' response to Jesus here. Jesus simply calls to him where he sees him, and Zacchaeus says yes. Some of you may be waiting this morning. You're waiting for some kind of dynamic, dramatic thing. That is often not the case. That is often not the case. I would encourage you not to be waiting and looking for something like that. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And you can just hear it again. We knew it again. One more time, Jesus is cozying up with the nasty people. He's hanging out with the people who drink and cuss and cheat. We see this again and again and again in the Gospels. There's an utter confusion or possibly an unwillingness to understand and accept the heart of God. And it's very hard for us to to get the weight of this, right? The best I could do thinking about it this week was to say to us as a church, it's as if uh, established traditional congregational churches were having to get used to their pastors spending a great deal of time in bars throughout many evenings, eating and drinking with people who were there, whose lives were busted up. They were there every night because they had nowhere else to be. They were there looking for hope. They were there trying to numb the pain and the confusion in their lives. You'd hear all of this kind of muttering in our churches too. Mutter, 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 gossip, 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 mutter, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. That's exactly what's happening in Jesus' day. The religious folk around him don't like who he's associating with. They don't like what he's doing. They accuse him of of being a glutton. They accuse him of being a drunk. He's none of those things. But he is certainly quite pleased to spend a much a great deal of his earthly time in the presence of broken, sinful, fallen people, eating and drinking and talking and listening. It's a remarkable thing. Look at Zacchaeus' response. I love it because it's the crowd that's muttering. But Zacchaeus doesn't even respond to them. He stands up and he says to Jesus. He looks past the crowd again for the second time. Because Zacchaeus has gotten something at this point. Don't miss this. Zacchaeus has realized now the crowd doesn't define him. This crowd doesn't get to tell him who Jesus is and who he is before Jesus. He doesn't even answer them. And he says, look, Lord. And I love this because it's an intimate exchange. Uh, It's a verbal recognition that Zacchaeus feels like now in an instant that he's known by Jesus, and he, in some sense, knows Jesus. Look, Lord. Look, Lord. Part of what Zacchaeus is about to say is, because you've loved me, I want to change. It's Jesus' love for Zacchaeus that is the catalyst for his life change. Jesus didn't come to Zacchaeus and say, get down here, you nasty tax collector. Get down here, you filthy sinner. We've got business to do. You've got to confess your sin. Jesus loves him, and Jesus' love becomes the catalyst then for Zacchaeus' change. Look at Zacchaeus. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. This is powerful because nowhere in Scripture is this expected or required. Scripture does teach, I believe, faithfully. That a biblical tithe is a normal practice for the people of God. I always hear people struggle with this. I don't always. Sometimes I'll hear uh, scholars, pastors, theologians, they'll say, well, you know, it, you know it's, it's not law in, in the New Testament. Nothing is law in the New Testament, right? Because love blows all that up and fulfills it. And they'll, they'll say, God doesn't really... We don't have to do that anymore. And then when people say, okay, where do you suggest is a, a good starting point uh, for people who are trying to be financially faithful to God and trust Him in that area in their life? They'll say, well, I think 10% is a good starting point. And I just want say, don't be cowards then. Just say, you, you still feel like that is a normal, obedient pattern for the people of God. But Zacchaeus doesn't, doesn't talk about giving away the first 10%. He says, I, I give away half. I give away half as a result of my encounter with you. To those who desperately need it. And then he says, if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, Numbers chapter 5 teaches us that if you have cheated somebody as the people of God, you pay them that back plus 20%. So that's that's Numbers 5. But not this much. Not four times the amount. What's happening here? What's happening in Zacchaeus' life? What's happening is an explosion of love and gratitude and generosity that again and again and again and again accompanies those who have a genuine experience and encounter with Jesus Christ. When a heart and a life are changed, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. Grace always really changes you. It doesn't set you free to sin in a sense. Well, in one sense it does, but it's not beneficial for you. But that freedom draws you closer into the heart of God. It causes you to look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I'm free now to serve you. I'm free now to serve you. Grace fuels, grace fuels a love driven obedience and pursuit of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson said this about this particular part of the passage. He said, when you embrace Jesus, it's amazing what falls out of your hands because it has already fallen out of your heart. And this is a, a vivid example, a vivid picture of the truth Jesus shares in Matthew 6.21 when he says, where your treasure is, there, there is your heart. Our heart always follows our treasure. And where our treasure is always reveals where our heart really, 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 really is. Now, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 lands like a lightning bolt as we come to the end of this text because we typically think about this text as centering around Zacchaeus, but it doesn't. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the center of this story, not Zacchaeus. It doesn't end by saying in Zacchaeus' experienced ongoing transformation and engaged in the mission of Christ to the glory of God. It says that salvation has come to his house today because Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. It's a powerful thing. And when you look back um, at verses 31 and 32 of Luke chapter 5, you find that this is a consistent theme. In Jesus' ministry. Chapter 5 has another encounter. Another encounter that bothers people. Who are looking at Jesus and the way he lives. In verse 31 and 32. Say this. Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. Or you might throw in there the self righteous. But sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. Jesus own self-disclosure of his purpose and his mission on earth is this, that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what drove him. That's what created and formed his values on earth as the son and savior of the world. And I'll tell you, to say yes to Jesus as savior now is to say yes to the mission of Jesus becoming your mission as well. Because when you truly are redeemed, you are redeemed into Christ and into the mission of Christ on earth. Jesus kind of gives this challenge. We know it as the Great Commission in Matthew 28 when he says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always. And I think sometimes we have confusion. Go is not the command there. It's not in the imperative tense. It's not the, 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 the tense of command. Make disciples is the command. That this is to be a normal part of our lives. And I don't want us to forget that when you look at the, the imagery here of Zacchaeus being up in a tree, it's because Jesus would soon hang on a tree that Zacchaeus is ultimately able to come down from the tree into the loving embrace and acceptance of God in mercy and mercy. And love. You and I are to be about, we as a church are to be about this. As the band makes their way back up here and we prepare to um, worship and to, to worship with a posture toward reflection and toward response to God's word, I would just challenge you to make it your prayer that God would make your life and our life together as a church one of mission, one of helping men and women, find Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of their lives, to find the purpose that God intends for them in the mission and the story of God lived out through Jesus Christ. The only reason churches exist is this. The only reason we exist is so that we might be looking around at what we do and the way we do it what we say and the way we say it, and always asking, how is this helping men and women coming onto our campus, men and women coming into our homes, men and women, students, children, encountering us as a reflection, as a body reflecting Jesus Christ. How is it helping them find Jesus? That's the question that is to be at the center of who we are as a church. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.